The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. The man that Arthur Brooks observed on the plane ride, overheard first, that he describes, Brooks does at the opening of his book, that mystery man of accomplishment and public stature that Brooks overhears saying that he wished he were dead, the same man that others reached out to to shake his hand and thank him for what he had done as he exited the plane just moments later. Maybe that person is you, or me, or might be. Not that we're famous, although maybe some of you are, but that many of us will wonder whether our life will add up the way we thought it might in the end. Life is often about the chase, moment to moment of our lives, going where passion or ambition or simple necessity of duty and opportunity takes us, maybe not thinking until late in the game about how it will look when the race is run and the dots are connected as we look back over the path that we've laid cut through the wilds of life. And wondering if any of it will endure the way Lori's father's literal trails cut through nature did endure. What will endure it's hard to know, isn't it, what legacy is worth plowing one's life into? Arthur Brooks was so worried by the man on the plane that he spent the next nine years of social scientific energy researching what to do with the second half of his life so that he wouldn't end up despairing like the man he overheard. And he spent those nine years asking, too, what things were worth pursuing in the second half of life, and were they the same as what you might want to spend and bet on in the first half of life, asking what was the work of each half of life and how that might add up together for a life that made sense, that was more likely to leave you at peace when you hung up your hat for the last time. And that study changed the course of Brooks's choices. The book I read from is worth a read, I think. If you're in the first half of life, you'll be affirmed in the idea of living boldly and doing all those creative things, risking on new theories, claiming whatever territories of mind and heart you feel drawn to. You'll learn that most Nobel Prize winners going back for more than a century, too, made their discoveries in their late 30s. They may have won the award later, but it was work that they did while they were younger, even in their 20s. You'll learn, too, that our skills diminish statistically, empirically proven to diminish earlier, much earlier than I think many of us suspect. You can read the book and see the stats for each possible profession if you're interested in getting granular. 
The stats are that most of us peak 20 years after we start a career, and then it's the slow diminishment. That's where I would find myself. And you'll learn that the second half of life is better spent, not doubling down often on the same things that we often choose in the first half. Apparently, in the second half of life, we have different strengths. We do have some strengths, so that's the good news. And if this is where we choose to grow, we can distinguish ourselves in a different way. Only certain professions are made, tailor-made for growing older. So if you're wondering about legacy in terms of distinguishing yourself, read the book, find out some of the facts about how we humans work. But I don't think the man in the plane was despairing about distinguishing himself. I think it was that vision of legacy that he found faulty that night. Marcus Aurelius, the second century Roman emperor and Stoic philosopher, didn't believe much in legacy, not the kind that had any name attached to it. He wrote, brief is the longest posthumous fame, buoyed only by a succession of poor human beings who will very soon die and who know little of themselves, much less of someone who died long ago. I think a lot of wise people through time, gurus and teachers and just people who have watched enough of life unfold to come, many of them, to the same conclusion. I turned on the radio a couple of weeks ago while I was driving somewhere, and the program that came on midstream was an interview. All of the callers who phoned in were giving thanks for the influence of the woman who was being interviewed, the influence she'd had on her, them, her presence and leadership in various circles of creative, cultural creatives, and they were giving thanks for her writing, especially. I waited and waited to find out who she was, piecing together little bits of information during the hour, and then the interviewer or one of the callers asked what it was like for her to have so deeply shaped Latin American literature and what did she think her legacy would be. And the woman answered without hesitation and with some force and complete clarity. And what I remember her saying was something like, I don't believe in legacy. I don't think we have a legacy. I think that's a thing some people think, but I don't believe in it. We women know that nothing lasts. And then she nodded, I can't remember her words, but nodded to the everyday tasks and callings of life and people as all we should be worried about, just living into that. The woman? The woman, it turned out, was Isabel Allende, author of 21 works of fiction and five works of nonfiction, born in Chile, but now also an American citizen. Allende, who is arguably the most widely read Spanish language author ever. But she doesn't believe that anything lasts or legacy is worth her time or focus. It's interesting in these last two years to think about this, right? These years when we've seen statues come down around the country, names come off state buildings. 
that what we know as something that passes muster as a notable legacy in one era is able to fail the test in another. Schools in our own city, 44 of them, names taken away, legacies, reevaluated. And every January, too, it strikes me, when we get ready to celebrate Martin Luther King Jr., there is a conversation around the edges of the celebrations about legacies and its use and abuse. In the conversations I'm always listening deeply to, there is this frustration, even disappointment, about the way the legacy of King is used. The man, the thinker, the person of faith, the activist and in particular about how he's often stripped of all his hard edges and rigorous demands for a version of him that gets held up that is less threatening and more supportive of the status quo he made every attempt to dismantle. In both those cases, it strikes me, legacy as fame or prestige is precarious business, isn't it? If it happens, it happens, but to aim for it, it's to aim for something that you know you won't be able to control how it's used, how you are used. Or whether we're all worthy of it retroactively at all or want to be held up to that kind of scrutiny the world always moving on in its deeper wisdom. But also, let's be honest, most legacies, ones with a name attached, I think Aurelius is right. They'll soon be forgotten. In the book, Strength to Strength, that I read from Arthur Brooks, interviews a man who's newly retired and was a CEO of some note, who says, last year I was in who's who. This year, I'm who's he? (laughs) I think that's true of most of us, or will be. I had a little taste of it in April, no wait, January, that I experienced when I went to a conference that's for UU professionals. It's a conference that nine and 10 years ago, I helped run as this group of people in charge of professional education for our Minister's Association. But I'd been largely out of circulation with colleagues because I was out of ministry for a few years and living abroad and then moved here and was adjusting and then pandemic. And there was a sea of colleagues, a sea of colleagues that had no idea who I was or that I was anyone of any note which was sobering and a really good experience to have. Because that truth does set us free, free of illusions, disappointment, free to live in the light of it. What if we embrace, really embrace, you and I, if you haven't already, the wisdom of the Upanishads that when we die, we fall back into the ocean, the larger ocean, like a drop of water merging back into its source? And what if our life on earth merges back into the larger wave of history of which we are a part? 
What if that is more often the case, more often the natural course of things? Then, then our legacy, our only legacy, the only one we can plan on and count on, is simply to leave the larger body of life as healthy and alive and blessed as we can and to do so free from all the wasted energy of trying to have our name attached to it and get credit for everything that happens. Would we celebrate all the work that each of us does in the world and thank people, thank one another and cheer each other along for the gorgeous good that we do or try to do? Yes. There is nothing wrong with appreciating the good done in the world while we're here and cheering it on, cheering one another on. Gratitude is gorgeous, and it is this virtuous cycle that we feed, regale that spirit, delight in it, set off fireworks and toast with champagne or coffee and applause. But doing all of this out of this wise, sage-like wisdom that knows that no one, when you're gone, when I'm gone, when we are gone, may know that it was us who did any of it. But the legacy of love endures. When I was in the church in Summit, New Jersey, that I served prior to coming here, we had this corner property and we were cornered in, literally, by this other property owner, the Dangler Funeral Parlor. If that isn't an incredible name for a funeral parlor, I don't know what is. But when he went out of business, he passed away and his wife was selling the property. We decided to make a bid to buy it, but none of us knew how to do a capital campaign, so I literally took a crash course, one-day course in NYU at their Center for Philanthropy on capital drives and read the, the book that they gave and paired up with this incredible lay leader who also knew absolutely nothing, and we both joined this incredible learning curve, and as soon as we can, we started making visits because we had to put a bid in fast. My partner was this stockbroker, and we decided, well, they told us we have to ask for a specific sum. We have no data to know what anybody's capable of. And I didn't, but they tell us you have to ask for a number. And I didn't want people to feel bad. I wanted them to feel good about whatever they did. But I also knew, I knew from personal experience that if anyone did less than they could, if they picked too easy a number to give to that effort, they wouldn't feel about the work the way I wanted them to. I knew that we were in this significant chapter in that institution's life, and I wanted everyone, when they drove by that lot, with that new building eventually, every time they drove by it with a friend visiting in town or their grandkids, to be able to point to it with huge pride and say, I helped make that possible. And to know that they had dug deep to make that possible. And that experience informed and still does my notion of legacy, this idea that we have pride. Maybe 
the only kind of pride that doesn't leave you despairing on the plane, late at night, reflecting when we look back and we know that we dug deep and offered ourselves with courage and with love and with generosity to the world, plowed our lives into it. Individual accomplishment, it's a bit of a lie. I don't think that's actually where the deepest joy lives. It's why for me, places like this church and places like it, wherever they exist, are for me the places where real legacy lives. And someday in the not-so-distant future, we all will hover in this space like a cloud of proud witnesses, literally or metaphorically, when we're gone. But this will endure, with grout holding the rocks together and the stones, weathering the storms like the one we just weathered because people dug deep, people like us before us and us after them. This is legacy. Our family is a place of legacy. Our wider communities and making them strong are a place of legacy. Our nation is legacy. World peace is a legacy. How we treat one another in every moment of interaction is a legacy. As Maya Angelou was famous for saying, I've learned that people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. As Unitarian Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote about legacy, to appreciate beauty, to find the beauty in others, to leave the world a bit better, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, or a redeemed social condition, to know that one has breathed, one life has breathed easier because you have lived. That is success. May the legacy of our lives be this kind of success. May we cheer one another on, laugh, delight, strive, endure heartbreak, pick ourselves up again and plow who we are and what we love into whatever garden patch is under our feet or within our reach. Forge those trails for others to enjoy, trails that will endure beyond our time. Love those near to us. Try to love and serve those who are suffering beyond our reach. Extend as far as we can to reach them. Aim for what will endure beyond us, literally and figuratively, shoring up walls with mortar to give shelter that will house the best collective work of all days. Whatever we think it is, and know this as the legacy of the wise and the lovely and the one we will be proud of when we look back over our shoulder hang our hat by the door the last time we bow to the last sunset of our days. I'm grateful to be on this journey of legacy with you all.
May the best of us endure. Amen. Long before I joined UUSF, I was a trail leader with the University of Hawaii Sierra Club. And on my rare days off from studying or working part-time to put myself through college, I would lead hikes and enjoy the lush tropical forests of Oahu. One of the trails that I especially enjoyed was the Pomoho Ridge Trail, which is an amazing hike through tropical forests up to the Ko'olau Summit, where spectacular views on the north shores of Oahu can be seen. The Pomoho Ridge Trail was especially significant to me, not only because of its rewarding views at the summit and challenging hiking conditions such as plank bridges, narrow, windy, and sometimes muddy ridge paths with steep terrain on one or both sides, but also because my father worked in the Civilian Conservation Corps in the 1930s and the CCC camp at Waihawa transformed an obscure wilderness trail into this accessible trail to be enjoyed by the public. Afuelai was in his late teens when the Waihawa camp was established in 1934. He was old enough to understand that the Great Depression of the 1930s hit Hawaii very hard. The sugar and pineapple economy of the American colonizers had collapsed due to lack of demand for such goods. Lacking a diversified economic base, the people of Hawaii faced high unemployment, which would reach 25% in 1936, leading to the threat of starvation across the islands. Wandering in the wilderness that was the depression with little to eat and no money in his pockets, my father jumped at the chance to join the CCC, as did an estimated 8 to 10% of Hawaii's young men at the time. They were provided food, clothing, shelter, and free medical care, and were paid $30 a month. Of, of that amount, $25 were deducted and sent directly to their families. Through their backbreaking work, and endless hours of toiling in hot, humid conditions, my father and his CCC colleagues built a legacy of hiking trails and provided much needed support for their families. Their contributions also meant that the people of Hawaii survived these hard times and their kids, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren would contribute to the building of today's Hawaii and beyond. I appreciate my father's courage and determination to build trails, stabilize his family's economic condition, and help his community through the depression years. Now, almost 90 years later, I am determined to support UUSF with a pledge to support our society through the wilderness of the pandemic, which hopefully has passed the worst, but still not over. UUSF has given me a spiritual home and much needed support when pandemic triggered anti-Asian hate affected me personally. Let's continue to help each other through these still challenging times by making our pledges to sustain this religious community. Happy trails, everyone.